Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast Podcast, hosted at podfeed.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, May 8th, 2022, and this is show number 887. Well, I got to tell you, is there any gift anybody can give you that is better than the gift of time? When I put out the shout out to the community that I needed help with reviews for this week's show so I could spend time with my grandkids last week and this week, Klaus Wolf, Jeff Gamut, Kurt Liebezeit, and Jill from the Northwoods all came through for me. They gave me the gift of time, and I thank them from the bottom of my heart for creating this awesome show for you. There's actually going to be very little content from me, all content from them, and it is all awesome. Also, I'd like to give a shout out and a happy Mother's Day out there to all of the great moms out there, including people like Carmen, who took care of my kids when they were growing up. And I generally give her credit for how great they turned out. So happy Mother's Day to all of you out there. This week, I got to be on Clockwise again with Dan Morin and Micah Sargent, and I was positively thrilled to find out that the fourth player of the game was going to be John Syracuse. Now, if you haven't heard of John or heard him, he's one of the three hosts of the awesome Accidental Tech Podcast, along with some other podcasts. I listen to ATP every single week, and I've always said, if I ever got to meet any of the three of them, the first one I'd want to meet would be John. He's quirky, he's brilliant, and he has a super quick wit. On Clockwise, we talked about the tech we always travel with, things we hope seem slow in 30 years, Twitter's new close friends feature, and devices we own that we secretly wish would die. That last one was mine. Anyway, I had a blast doing the show with him, and then afterwards, I asked him if he'd come on Chit Chat Across the Pond, and he said yes. I'm starting a list of things to talk to him about, but one thing that we will definitely go through for sure is his enthusiast explanation of the different display technologies from LCD up through Quantum Dot OLED. I'm super excited to get to talk to him one-on-one and just pick his brains on all kinds of things. Now, while you wait for that episode to come out, you can look for Clockwise number 449, quote, and the title is, It's Still Working, I'm So Sad. You can find that at relay.fm slash clockwise, or of course, there's a link in the show notes, and you can get to it right from within your podcatcher. Look at the chapters in in your podcatcher. It's right there. Just click on it. All right, let's kick off the show. We're going to hear from Klaus Wolf from Germany. Hello, Nocilla Castaways. Back in March, I took a trip to New York City. It was my first big vacation in over two years. The pandemic had me firmly grounded in Germany for all that time. The surreal feeling for someone who was used to be on the road for at least a week or two every month. New York is a pretty fun place, and for me it brings back lots of memories from back in the day when I was a student. However, this isn't a story about how old I feel, but the need for mobile data abroad. Like many of you, I don't really use my phone to make calls, and thus I don't miss the phone part of my phone when away. However, if you take my data away, I feel severely limited. In the past, I would order a prepaid SIM card and swap it on the plane. This time, I decided to try my luck with an eSIM. I searched the App Store for a suitable provider, and there were so many options that it was super hard to make a decision. In the end, I settled for Aerallo. I wished I could tell you that it was the result of a lengthy evidence-based search, but it basically was a well-reviewed app that had mobile data at a price I thought to be fair. 5 gigabytes for $16. What sealed the deal was that I could pay with Apple Pay. After buying the eSIM, I got a QR code, which I ended up printing out and took with me. Once I had arrived at JFK Airport, I scanned the code, followed the very detailed instructions, and it appeared like all was well, except that I didn't manage to connect to the internet. 
I double-checked all the settings. Under mobile data, I had switched off my main data plan and enabled the eSIM. I double and triple-checked the instructions and had that sinking feeling that it was a scam after all. In the end, I remembered that Eralo had mentioned that the eSIM would only work with AT&T or T-Mobile, so I decided to double-check the network I was on. And there it was. My phone had tried to attach itself to Verizon. I toggled the network selection from automatic to manually and selected T-Mobile. My data came to life. While it sounds like this might have been an ordeal, it gave me something to do while waiting to go through immigration. While away, I visited New York and Boston. Reception in both cities was perfect. The only time the internet was a wee bit shaky was in and around the Statue of Liberty, but the views made more than up for it. Comparing to my previous purchase of a physical SIM, here are a few thoughts. The lack of a phone number wasn't a big deal for me, but it also meant that my wife and kids had to remember to FaceTime me instead of simply calling. If I had needed to make a call, I would have had to go on the hunt for a voice over IP application or use a phone booth. The Aralo app gave me a good overview of how much data I had used, and in the unlikely event that I had used up all my data, they would have made it easy to top up with more. Overall, I'm very happy with the experience, and I will be sure to use the service again. If you plan to travel abroad this year, check out an eSIM provider on a phone near you. If you have an iPhone, XR, or newer, you will be supported. Well, that's really interesting, Klaus. Uh, the, I, I don't travel to the United States, obviously, since I am resident here, but I'm also interested in having um, SIM cards for other services on an iPad while in the United States. And I know this is an eSIM we're talking about here, but uh, the price on that is really compelling. I use Google Fi and it's $10 per gigabyte. You paid $3.2 per gigabyte. Now, Google Fi has a few advantages. I get multiple data-only data cards, and that means Steve and I can share the data so we don't have to figure out how much data to buy. And we do get one real phone number with that for when we travel. Now, uh, also with Google Fi, once you hit six gigabytes, you stop paying any more. So 60 bucks is the most you can possibly pay in a calendar month. Note that calendar month, if you have a vacation out of town that's or out of the country that's uh, crossing two months, it's $120. But, you know, I don't know. It's an interesting trade-off. The price on uh, Arello is uh, really darn attractive. Now, I asked uh, Klaus how would the QR code have worked if he hadn't printed it out. Uh, it seems like a sort of a self-referential problem. If you can't print it out, you can't get connected, but you can't get connected if you don't have anything to print to. And he sent me a little bit of an explanation of how it could work. And I'm, I'm not exactly sure how that does work, but I'm sure there's a method. Um, the other funny thing he mentioned in his, his fallback plan for phone calls would have been to use a phone booth. I did a check. There are four phone booths in all of New York. I think that's all of New York City, not New York State. But anyway, that would have been the point. But uh, yeah, he would have not really needed it. Um, but I thought that was funny that there were four of them. And now a man who needs no introduction. Hi, I'm Jeff Gamut. Let's talk about Plexicam. That's the webcam mount that you didn't know you needed for your display. All right, let's set the scene. It's time for another web meeting. So you launch Zoom or Skype or Teams or whatever, and you sigh because once again, you're bending your neck at an unnatural angle to look into your webcam. Or maybe you weren't even bothering and instead you're giving everyone a view of the top of your head, your profile, the side of your head, whatever. That's where Plexicam comes in. 
This clever contraption holds your webcam or smartphone at eye level so you look at the camera while also seeing your computer screen. Let's dive in to see how well it works and if it's worth buying. All right, PlexiCam is a clear acrylic arm that hangs from the top of your desktop or laptop display. It positions your webcam or smartphone at eye level so it appears you're looking directly at the other participants in your web call. You don't need any tools to set up PlexiCam and it doesn't attach permanently so you can easily move it out of the way when you aren't on a video call. Since it's clear, you can see through to whatever is on your screen, whether that's text, graphics, or your friends' and coworkers' faces. The kit includes everything you need to get started. That includes a clear acrylic arm that hangs from the top of your display, an adjustable shelf for your webcam or smartphone, a thumb screw for your webcam's threaded mount, adhesive clips for cable management, and a carrying pouch. There are also versions available for laptop screens, 15-inch and larger displays, and for using DSLR cameras. The smartphone adapter is available as well as an add-on. I'm using the PlexiCam Pro Kit. It's designed for displays between 15 inches and 27 inches, although it works just fine with my 34-inch HPZ 34C curved display. I also have the optional smartphone adapter. The PlexiCam Pro Plus is geared towards users with 21-inch and larger displays, plus it includes a second shelf for mounting a light. An optional 9-inch extension is available with this kit if you have a really big display. For DSLR camera users, there's the PlexiCam Max kit. So let's talk about setting up the PlexiCam. According to the PlexiCam website, it takes about 10 minutes to get up and running, Considering the process involves little more than taking the parts out of the box, attaching a webcam to the shelf, sliding the shelf onto the arm, and then hanging the arm off your display, that seems like a pretty generous time allotment. Yet maybe they're including the time you spent untangling the webcam cable from everything else that's connected to your USB hub. Or maybe they're thinking about the time you spent adjusting the camera shelf up and down on the arm to get the position just right. Regardless, setting up the PlexiCam is amazingly simple. My webcam sits high enough on the arm that I didn't even need the cable management clips. For everyone who does need them, however, it's nice that those clips are included. The PlexiCam is seriously simple to set up. It's so simple, in fact, that after reading the included instructions, I heard Jeff Goldblum's voice in my head saying, there's no step three. Let's talk about using the PlexiCam. Now, I position my PlexiCam at eye level and at my display's vertical midpoint so it appears as if I'm looking directly at whoever sees me. It's much more comfortable than looking above the top of my display where my webcam used to sit, and it feels more natural when I'm in web meetings, moderating webinars, or participating in podcasts. My Logitech C920 webcam is pretty small, so very little of my display is blocked. But what about the arm hanging in front of your display? Surely it distorts whatever's behind it, so you're losing a lot more usable screen space. Well, not so. The acrylic is so clear that I can easily read text right through it. Even letters at the edge of the arm are readable. It's so close to invisible that it's almost like it's not there. 
And since PlexiCam hangs from the top of your display, it's easy to move. And that's really important for people like me who want the camera out of the way when we aren't using it. And for me, this also raised the concern about using the device in such a way where I end up scratching the screen. After several months' use, that hasn't been a problem, even though the bottom edge of the vertical arm does physically rest on the LCD screen surface. I assume if you slide the arm back and forth across the display a lot, you'll eventually end up with scratches. But since I pick up the arm and then physically move it, I don't expect this is ever going to be an issue for me. And my PlexiCam sits at the edge of my display when I don't need to be using my camera. For me, that's no big deal because it's in front of my display's built-in speakers. And since the whole contraption is basically just a big transparent hook, you could just as easily hang it down the back side of your display too. Now, unfortunately, most every time I set the PlexiCam in position, I have to adjust the camera shelf a little to horizontally align my camera. I never have issues with the shelf shifting vertically, which is good because the thought of my camera slowly getting lower while recording a podcast, that sounds a lot funnier than it would be in real life. And once my camera is horizontally aligned again, though, it stays in place without any problems. Now, moving your webcam from the top of the display down to eye level also moves it closer to you. Like I said, I have a C920, and it's pushed back as far as it will go on the camera shelf, and it's still about three inches closer to my face than it is when it's sitting on top of my display. Now, I don't see that as a problem, but it's something to be aware of because other people might notice. Uh, in my case, it means that more of my face is filling the screen than it did before. Now, backing my chair away from my desk, yeah, it certainly helps, but I can move only so far before it's hard to read text on my display. Now, I do suspect people with better eyes than mine won't have as much trouble with this, and alternately, it's just a sign that it's time for me to get new glasses. Okay, so now the big question, is PlexiCam worth buying? So, should you buy one? If you're already happy with your webcam placement, then no, you really don't need a PlexiCam. But if you need the ability to really control the camera's position without obscuring uh, the contents that's on your display, then I think this is an excellent investment. My PlexiCam is invaluable for podcasting, for web presentations, and online meetings. I feel like I'm looking at everyone else instead of artificially aiming my face at a camera. And I can see everything I need on my display without constantly moving my head around. It does what I need without getting in my way, which is exactly what I want in my workstation camera mount. Hey, Jeff, thanks so much for this. This is this is a really interesting product. I think it solves an interesting problem. And I think um, anybody who's interested in this, I really encourage you to go to the links in the show notes, uh, the link in the show notes to his review where he's got a bunch of great pictures because you can see that you really truly can read through this thing, which I, I doubted it when he said it because, you know, Jeff, I, he didn't know what he's talking about. But anyway, um, no, you can see in the photos. Um, but the other thing is, 
if you have a camera that doesn't have a screw thread mount, a quarter 20 inch, um, you know, tripod mount on it, like mine uh, doesn't have it. I've got the magnetically attached Logitech 4K for the XDR display, but they sell a little 3M sticky thing to give a quarter 20 thread to those who don't have that. So I'm kind of tempted to try this. This looks, this looks like a pretty interesting solution. Um, I wouldn't do it for my own shows because, uh, you know, Ah, it's not a video podcast, but I might do it for the other people as a courtesy. So thank you very much for this, Jeff. That was uh, that was awesome. I think that might be your debut recording for the NoSillaCast. About 11 years after I started working as a mechanical engineer, the first computer-aided design, or CAD, application was brought into our company, and they selected me as being the first one to test it out. You see, they wanted to find out, could this really replace drafting boards? It seems like a newfangled thing. Probably not. Let's make Allison do it. Anyway, this was the beginning of my one and only intentional career shift when I discovered that I could really make the computer sing. I discovered that while I liked mechanical engineering, I loved using the computer to do mechanical engineering. So for that reason, my heart warms to the review you're about to hear by Kurt Liebezeit, also known as PDX Kurt in the chat room. He's going to review the free parametric modeling program, FreeCAD. When I was a kid, my grandpa used to take my sisters and me to a certain park in the Chicago Park District to perform a ritual on Sundays after church. We didn't go there to play on the swings or throw a ball for a dog. We went there to fill up glass jugs with water at a well with a hand pump. Clack, 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 gush. Grandpa was a big believer in the healthful properties of fresh water pumped from a well. Forty years later, I bought a rural property with its own well, and of course one of the first things I wanted was a hand pump put on the well. I bought the hand pump, but immediately ran into problems with the installation. Hand pumps aren't made to share space with an existing household electric pump down in the well casing. Both pumps expect to sit in the middle of the well casing when you use standard mounting parts. What I needed was a way to offset each pump assembly from the other. I found that I could move the electric pump off to one side using something called a pitless adapter, but I could not find an off-the-shelf commercial solution for offsetting the hand pump. I decided to design a custom hand pump mounting platform that would clamp onto the well casing while providing the necessary offset, using an open-source software program called FreeCAD. My employer graciously consented to cut the steel plate using their half-million-dollar water jet cutting machine, so I was off and running. This is a review of my experience using FreeCAD to design a multiple-part assembly in 3D. Now, FreeCAD has enormous capabilities serving various fields of engineering like architecture, optical design, robotics, and more, but 99% of the public is going to be interested in its mechanical part design capabilities, as I was. I won't be able to give you a detailed tutorial in this 12-minute review, but I want to convey something about the flavor of what it's like to work with FreeCAD. When you start the program, you're presented with a main window and three auxiliary panes. At the top is the pane containing tool icons. On the left is a pane that is shared by parameter inputs and a structured tree view of your assembly. And at the bottom is a status window pane. The main window is where you view your assembly in 3D, and it's also where you create sketches, which are 2D drawings. 
FreeCAD works similarly to other CAD programs when it comes to designing three-dimensional parts. You start by creating a two-dimensional sketch and then perform some operation on the sketch to make it three-dimensional. A very common operation that you will use often is the pad or extrude tool. This operation takes a closed line 2D figure, like a square, and extrudes it outward in the third dimension, creating a box or a cube. Once you have a three-dimensional object like a box, you can create another sketch and use that 2D figure to make a pocket or a hole operation through the original 3D object. With just the pad and pocket tools, you can create an amazing number of objects. But of course, FreeCAD has other 2D to 3D transformations that you can utilize as well. You can do a revolved extrusion, or even a helical extrusion, a sweep along a path, or a loft through two different profiles as additive actions. There are also subtractive equivalents that create simple grooves and helical grooves, subtract subtractive sweeps and lofts, etc. Once you have a 3D object, you can replicate it linearly or in polar fashion. You can perform three-dimensional Boolean operations, and so on. If you're interested in FreeCAD for the purpose of making simple three-dimensional parts using a 3D printer, then this is probably as far as you need to go to master FreeCAD. I want to talk to you about the sketching process in more detail before I tell you about one of FreeCAD's killer features. Central to the idea of creating a sketch is the concept of constraints. FreeCAD has a large range of constraints that you can apply to elements in a 2D sketch. You can define the length of a line, or the angle of a line. You can define the radius or diameter of an arc or a circle. You can constrain one end of a line to be coincident with the end of another line, or tangent to a circle. You can thus see that constraints are really just a generalization of the dimensioning you might be familiar with seeing on old-fashioned factory part drawings. The sketching environment is pretty smart about supplying constraints automatically. If you start a line by clicking within a certain small distance from another feature, the end of another line for instance, it will assume that you intended to make that start of the new line coincident with the endpoint of the old line. Similarly, if you draw a line that is pretty close to horizontal in angle, it assumes you want a perfectly horizontal line, and it will generate a keep this line horizontal constraint for you. These little automatic constraints are usually very helpful in making your workflow more efficient. But there is a list of the currently active constraints in the left panel where you can delete anything that isn't intended, for sometimes you really do want a line that is just a shade off from horizontal. Suppose you are sketching in the workbench environment, called Sketcher, and you want to create a square. You can click on the rectangle tool icon, and then click once for one corner of the square, then click again to define the other corner. That simple two-click operation actually results in four lines that come in with a bunch of assumed constraints. The ends of the lines are connected, and, and the horizontal lines are truly horizontal, and the vertical lines are truly vertical. And although you clicked intentionally to make the square a certain size and in a certain position, FreeCAD wants you to formally define the X and Y sides with dimensions and also define the position with offsets in X and Y from the origin. 
These are all constraints that you can apply manually using the constraint palette, and they require you to type in a number for each distance. When your sketch is completely, formally defined, the sketcher environment will tell you that it is solved, and the figure will be outlined in green. Now FreeCAD's killer feature is related to constraints, and it's called parametric modeling. Parametric modeling allows you to replace hard-coded constants in constraints with values that are stored in a table and referred to by a meaningful name that you get to assign. You can even define a constraint or position to use a formula that contains those table values. This is incredibly powerful because it allows you to change your design without having to go in and hand modify all of the sketches individually where a particular dimension might have been used or assumed. To give you an idea of how powerful parametric modeling is, I defined nearly everything in my well support system parametrically. At a certain point, I decided that the three-quarter inch support posts looked too flimsy, so I changed the entry for the support post diameter in the spreadsheet to one inch. Every other part in the design scaled automatically to accommodate the change. It was freaking magic. The sketching environment also allows you to create construction lines and arcs that you can then use to form the basis for other constraints on real object geometry. I used this feature to play around with where the slots would fall in the mounting plate. I made the angle of a construction line that defined the start of one slot to be a parametric variable, and then I was able to change the value in the spreadsheet to find an angle where the slots didn't interfere with the support posts. This is a review, so I want to talk about how well all of this works. I found Sketcher easy to use and really quite intuitive. For collections of simple lines and arcs that don't need to be referenced to other parts, it's efficient and darn near bulletproof. One limitation of FreeCAD currently, however, is that when you're creating a sketch, you don't automatically have access to create a constraint off an edge or a point that exists on another part of the assembly. You can see the edge or point, unless you've turned it off in the tree view, but you can't click on it as part of a constraining operation. It has to be imported into the body that contains the sketch and made explicitly available using a tool called the shape binder. You can think of the shape binder as a container that holds information about the edges and points from other parts that you want to use in this part. I think you'll find that commercial software, like SolidWorks, allows you to seamlessly reference edges on other parts while sketching, a huge advantage. Another problem that is easy to run into is over-constraining your sketch. For instance, if you have a situation like I did, where I wanted to have slots on two different parts line up with each other, you have to be really careful when sketching out the second slot. I found it best to purposefully draw the second slot well enough away from the imported features of the first slot so that the automatic constraints didn't kick in, and then manually add constraints to bring the second slot into alignment. It can be easy to back yourself into a corner where you have a long list of constraints, mostly automatically generated, and you don't quite know which ones to get rid of to fix an over-constrained sketch. As you can see in the screenshot of my well pump mounting system, I created a number of different components and placed them in relation to each other in 3D space, although I only show one of the four clamps. 
I used parametric equations to define how all the parts should be positioned relative to each other, which meant that if I wanted to create more space between the top of the well cap and the mounting plate, all I had to do was change an entry in the spreadsheet. However, setting it up was a bit tedious, though that effort occurred incrementally as the design progressed. This is another area where commercial software is better. In SolidWorks, you can grab a part with the mouse, rotate it like you do in Tetris, and then mate it to another face or edge as needed. The FreeCAD developers have been actively working on the assembly workbench, and likely this situation will improve in the next release. One little annoyance of FreeCAD is that it doesn't completely support arbitrary units of measurement. It really wants you to use millimeters. You can set it to use inches, and it will respect hard-coded dimensions that you make in inches, but anything you put in the spreadsheet has to be in millimeters, although it will display it back to you in inches. One aspect of the program that I found confusing was the differences between parts and bodies in the tree hierarchy. Hierarchically, bodies sit below parts, so apparently multiple bodies can form one part, as I did with the clamp. You must export parts when creating IGES or DXF files, it appears. You might be wondering, do I need a powerful computer to run FreeCAD? I would say no, based on the fact that I created this entire design using a 2017 dual-core MacBook Air with built-in Intel graphics hardware, not exactly a powerhouse computer. I was even able to work with it on the built-in screen, though I was much more comfortable and effective when I hooked up to an external monitor. The program uses about 100% of one CPU core, especially when the full assembly is being viewed, so the fan was definitely running most of the time. The final question I want to address is, how attainable is FreeCAD mastery to ordinary mortals? I would say that, yes, someone without CAD experience can master most of FreeCAD in something like a week of evening study. I have to confess that this was actually my second attempt to learn FreeCAD. I took a run at it a couple of years ago, but found that the learning resources were meager at that time, and the program itself was, of course, not as well developed. This time around, I managed to find a couple of really good tutorials on YouTube channels. I watched the videos and took notes, and then tried to replicate the tutorials on my own. Inevitably, I would find that I had missed a step, so I would go back to the video and watch that section again. Repeat until mastery arrives. FreeCAD also has a documentation wiki that's very complete and accurate, but generally speaking, you have to know what you're looking for in order to be able to use it. FreeCAD also appears to have a sizable user and developer community, so you can get assistance in the forum if you need help. All in all, I was very happy with FreeCAD, and my design project was successful. If you want to get involved in the maker community, or just want to document a woodworking project, I wouldn't hesitate to reach for FreeCAD. As you might guess, the price-to-performance ratio is very favorable. Well, this is fantastic, Kurt. I really hope to carve out some time to watch some of the intro videos you uh, sent us here uh, that are in the show notes, of course, so I can give FreeCAD a successful spin. Now, I tweeted out a link to Kurt's written article, and I included FreeCAD News on distribution. They love the review, as you can imagine, but they also included this little note. They said, 
we've improved units of measurement quite a bit in V0.2.0. Wait, no, it's V0.20 dev, which is about to be released. We invite you to test the weekly build over at github.com. So pretty much Kurt's only complaint is already being improved upon. Thank you so much, Kurt, for sending this in. This is fantastic. One of the best things about Patreon is that it's just as easy to stop pledging to a show as it is to start. Now, I don't want to encourage anybody to leave, but it's really great to know that you can with a click of a button. Now, I make it a point to never track who stops supporting the show because, you know, that's just a road to sadness, right? And I don't want to make anyone feel guilty or sad for stopping. That's just not what we're all about here. But I did want to give a shout out to Martin, who was a supporter for a couple of years, evidently took a break, and then just came back as a patron of the show. He exercised all of the buttons. So thank you very much to Martin for your generous support, and welcome back. You too can be cool like Martin by going to podfeet.com slash Patreon, or just push the link in your podcatcher of choice for this chapter. Hi everyone, this is Jill from the North Woods. You know, I've looked for a task manager. For a really long time, I have tried everything, pen and paper, the Franklin Planner, all the different ways that you can keep track of tasks. I've tried the ones offered by Microsoft. I've tried some other apps that are out there, and nothing quite did it for me. I either got frustrated because it didn't have enough features, or it had so many features and it was so busy and so complicated that I would just... Build a system of tasks so complicated, I couldn't even get through it anymore. Also, I wanted to be able to use the app on any device I had, Windows, iOS, now the MacBook, or through a web interface if I'm on my work computer, which doesn't allow me to install any apps. And then the last consideration I had is that I wanted to be able to work offline, take my tasks with me, whether I was on a plane on an international trip, or camping in the North Woods, I wanted to be able to have all my tasks with me all the time. So after trying many different apps, looking through many different features, reading tons of reviews, I came to Todoist, and it has become my home for tasks for a number of years. First thing is that as a task management system, it does the basic lists of tasks, just like you would expect it would. You can give it a name, a brief description, so you know a little bit more about it. I have done tasks where I have no idea what in the world they are. I would write them down in a way that made sense to me, usually at two in the morning. And then when it came down for me to do the task, who knows what it meant? So the descriptions are nice, which allows me, if I need to, to put in a little bit more detail. Of course, I can put a due date, I can put down tags or labels or views so that I can organize them. So for example, I use that for my podcasts. Maybe my tags are the names of the various podcasts I'm working on, so I can see which ones need to be written, need to be recorded, need to be edited, need to be posted, and then eventually completed. And I can just keep dropping them into the next column once I get that far. So now I can break down the various tasks into different quadrants so I can actually get the lists I want to have for that moment. Sitting up in my recording room, I want to see what's ready to record. I can set a priority to the tasks and a reminder, so it lets me know that I need to do this. I have a friend who also uses Todoist, 
so I can also assign tasks to her, which is awfully nice for me. There's various ways to create new tasks. I can enter them in manually. I can use extensions on a browser or through my watch. I can even email the system. There's a lot of integrations, which we'll talk about later. And it has a nice clean view. I can create my own views so that I can see the tasks that I really want to see when I want to see them. And even hide the finished tasks so they don't clutter up my view with things that happened in the past that I don't care about anymore. There's even a productivity view that will allow me to see how well I've been doing on my tasks. Am I keeping up with the things I'm supposed to get done? And even gives me what they call a karma score, which just says how well I'm doing. Feels a little bit more fun than just completing tasks. If I want to have a task that is uncompletable, maybe I want to use it as a header or a note, or maybe it's a top-level task that doesn't really ever get accomplished just the subtasks under them get accomplished, I can put an asterisk and then a space in front of the task name and that will make it uncompletable. So I can't check it off my list. That should make some people who are the people who love to check off tasks completely crazy. What do you mean to have a task that you can't complete? That's just weird. The system also allows for projects. The projects are ways of organizing tasks. You can put in the priority and the deadline. You can formulate the project either in a list form, so you just see the tasks in a giant list, which is nice. The lists have sections, so you can organize a project by the category of the tasks that go under it, or you can view it as a board, which means that it shows up on a grid. What's called in the productivity world a Kaban board, which just means that you can have columns a little bit like Trello You can import or export projects as a template or import other templates that you may want to use from their system that are handy. And it also shows you a more professional way to set up these projects built by the very people who built the software so they know how to make use of all the functionality. Some of the project templates include the GTD or Get Things Done template, include meeting notes, developer templates for bug tracking, or other templates that are meant to help you get started. When it comes to the projects themselves, you can add comments and see the history when things got completed, which is handy if you are sharing tasks with other people on a team or your friends. So then there's ways of categorizing your tasks, including priority. Of course, you want to set if it's a high priority item, a low priority item, whatever you like. There's numbers one through four that comes with the system. Then there's labels, which are just like tags that allow you to categorize, again, your task so that you can see a different view of the tasks that you have outside of the projects. Well, I use a view that I call my shopping view, which shows me my shopping lists. It shows me restaurants that I would like to try in town, and it shows me the money I owe my friend. I go out with my friend quite a bit, and a lot of times one of us is buying something for the other because they left their wallet at home, or we pay for lunch. So we keep a tally inside that view that lets us know how much we each owe each other so that we can settle the score later. The views are just a way of bringing forward the tasks that you want to see in the way that you want to see them. When I'm traveling with my phone, I want to see the shopping list. When I'm at home and looking at my MacBook, I want to see my list bucketed according to when I need to get them done. 
So I know what I have to do today, tomorrow, this weekend. Makes it nice and easy for me. And then there's the concept of views, which is another way of categorizing the way that you see your tasks. I think in a way, priority, labels, and views, they're all really just tags. So you can create ways of partitioning out certain tasks that may not be in the same project, but may be the same activity. This way you can pull them all together, regardless of what project they're in. I do some other things too beyond my task. I keep lists of important things to remember, like subscriptions, household maintenance supplies. I have a board list, which means that if I'm sitting around bored going, I don't know what to do with myself, I'm bored. I have a list of fun things that I could think of doing that sometimes I don't remember when I'm particularly bored. I have some fun home projects and I do a lot of crafts. You can sort your tasks when you're creating these views or when you're just looking at your list of tasks by the alphabetical method, who the task is assigned to, the due date, the date it was added, the priority of the task, and then the project. Again, the project is keeping all the tasks together because sometimes I want to see when they're due, but other times I want to see what the priority is. They may not be the same thing. So that makes it nice for me so that I know what to do next. There are some great date shortcuts. I won't go through them all. There's a whole document page that I'll put in the show notes that talks about how you can schedule due dates and reminders. Like you can say every day. That would be every day at 9 a.m. It'll give you a reminder. Or every evening. That's 7 p.m. every day. Weekday, workday. So if I say every three days, it'll remind me every three days. If I put an exclamation mark after the every, It will do three days after I completed the last task. It'll even try to parse out your language. So if you say create monthly report, it is going to set up for you a reoccurring due date because it read the word monthly. But if you don't like the smart dates, if you don't like it doing that, you can press the delete button or the backspace key and it'll get rid of it. You can also decide if you want it to just be mobile notifications or desktop notifications, or email notifications. There's a number of integrations available for Todoist, such as emails. You'll be able to also duplicate tasks, archive them, or delete them through email. There's integrations like Fantastical, Drafts, Gmail, If This and That, Jira, Outlook, Teams, Spark, Slack, even Garmin through an API token. You can also integrate it with the Home Assistant's, so that you can say, hey, you know who, add a task to my list or add a shopping item to my shopping list and it'll put it in the right spot. So then I can add things on the fly when I'm at a stray moment. There's a healthy community out there, people who have created automations through Workflow or Keyboard Maestro. And I'm excited to start working with that. I've not done those things, but it sounds neat. And if you have a paid account, you can automatically get backups. There's even ways of getting the calendar built into other calendar systems. You can use iCal or you can use an API token to bring that calendar of tasks into other systems. There is a free account. It does most of the things that the pro account does. There are some limitations. For example, how many projects, tasks per projects, how many uploads, filters, and views you can have. If you use a free account, you don't get automatic backups, you don't get priority support or background themes, 
and you also get no reminders. And that's what most people are sad about with the free account. There's also a business account that allows for team projects and other types of activity. Free users can even share projects with up to five other users. Pro users can share their projects with 25 people and business users can share them with 50 people. So for $4 a month or $36 a year, you can get the pro version or for $60 a year or $6 a month, you can get the business edition. The other nice thing about Todoist and what attracted me to it was the fact that it works on mobile devices, iOS, Android. I can keep track of all my tasks. I can do everything I need to. I get notifications. It's really nice. Desktop machines, Mac OS, Windows, or Linux. There's browser extensions for Chrome, Edge, Firefox, and Safari. Again, you can get reminders or send emails to add to your tasks, which is nice. They both work in Outlook and Gmail. They work on both the Apple Watch and the Android Watch. And if worse comes to worse, you can always use Todoist.com and get there to all your tasks, which is what, again, I do when I'm on my work computer and I want to see my lists. So my suggestion to you is if you're going to start with any task management system, is to be detailed about the tasks you write or the projects you write. Then pick a system. Some people like the GTD system, get things done, or they have other ways of doing it, a bucket system. Or there's another method called the time sector method, which I spent the week switching my system over to. The thing that helped me learn the most about Todoist is there's a fellow on YouTube called Carl Pauline. And he does a deep dive into every feature, how he sets up his system, how he uses it, and what are the pros and cons of the different methods. I highly recommend his videos and a link to his videos are in the show notes. The Todoist documentation is also fantastic. Plus, they have a set of YouTube videos as well. Well documented and they're very well done. Many times when I get involved in a new software, I spend my time looking at third-party people to teach me how to use the app. But what I found is Todoist is so good at their documentation, I never really had to even leave their website to find out more information. So that's my review of Todoist. I hope that it helps in determining what to-do list you would like to do. I really think in the end, it does it all in a nice clean interface I feel like I get things done with it. I easily find the things I'm supposed to get done and it doesn't cause me to drag with high level complexity. Nor do I ever think, gee, I wish it did this or I wish it did that. So to me, Todoist is that perfect level of simplicity and features. Again, this is Jill from the Northwoods. And if you have any questions, please let me know. You can find me in the Nozilla Cast Slack channel or comment on the blog post on Allison's website. Well, this couldn't come at a better time, Jill. I need a new to-do application because the one I have, it's full. It's just got all of these tasks that aren't getting done. So I think if I just get a new one, that's going to solve all of my problems. Well, that's going to wind us up. But didn't I promise you that Klaus, Jeff, Kurt, and Joe were going to bring us a fabulous show this week? And I couldn't be happier that they did all of this for us so that I could spend time with my grandkids. Again, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. 
Well, did you know that you can email me? You can email reviews if you like, like these people did, but you can email me any kind of questions, comments, suggestions, anything you want at allison at podfeet.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. So if you want to join in the fun of the conversation, you can join our Slack community at podfeet.com slash Slack. It's a great place to go because you can talk to me and all of the other lo- lovely Nocilla castaways. There's a lot of fun people in there, and it's it's this odd combination of chatty, but just chatty enough, not too chatty, if you know what I mean. And Slack gives you a lot of great tools to, say, follow one channel, but not another channel, so you don't get notifications of stuff you don't care about. Anyway, I love it over there, and I hope you'll join us at podfeet.com slash Slack. You can also support the show at podfeet.com slash Patreon or with a one-time donation at podfeet.com slash PayPal. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, please head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.